electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, how are the streaming wars shaping up? Netflix bouncing back after spooking investors early. We'll tell you what may have changed their minds. Plus. And I think that Congress has said that there's one agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, under this committee. And you won't answer my question, and you're the head of that agency. So give me a break. Come on. SEC Chair Gary Gensler in the hot seat, but it's what he didn't say that has crypto bugs enraged. An Iowa bill that would make it easier for 14-year-olds to work on an assembly line and a 16-year-old to serve you a beer? We'll speak with lawmakers for and against that effort. More anger at Southwest Airlines as passengers stranded yet again. We'll speak with the Southwest Pilots Union about what exactly is going down in Dallas. And Google launching a new foldable version of its Pixel phone. Will Apple finally follow suit? Does anybody even want one? Those stories and much more on tap. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, welcome. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories in a moment. But first up tonight on Last Call, as you saw the breaking news animation, Fox News settling with Dominion voting system just moments before the bombshell trial was set to kick off. Eamon Jabbers is at the Delaware courthouse with details. Eamon. Brian, in the end, Fox just didn't want to go to trial here, but it took until after the jury had already been impaneled and the presiding judge had given them their first instructions until the deal worth more than $787 million could finally get done. And as a result, media mogul Rupert Murdoch will not have to testify about his TV network's conduct before a jury of his peers here in Wilmington, Delaware. I was in the hallway outside the holding room in those tense moments just before the announcement. I could see one of the co-founders of the private equity firm uh, Staple Street Capital that owns Dominion Voting Systems break into a huge smile as he talked to the Dominion legal team. It looked to me like he was getting some very good news indeed. Fox's legal team left the courthouse in silence after the uh, decision was announced, declining to answer any questions at all from reporters. But the company did issue a statement saying, quote, we acknowledge the court's Uh, the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. This settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. By contrast, Dominion's team headed straight for the microphones here outside the courthouse saying truth matters and lies have consequences. Afterward, I asked Dominion attorney Justin Nelson what comes next. He told me Dominion is working on six other cases, Brian, including against conservative news organizations, Newsmax and One America News, Trump supporter Mike Lindell and Trump 2020 attorneys Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. I think what this really sends a message is that we will be holding people accountable for lies. And I think what really is so important about today is really for the first time across any litigation is that people are being held accountable for the lies of the 2020 election. 
And Brian, another voting systems company, Smartmatic, has a $2.7 billion lawsuit against Fox News pending as well. That's asking for $2.7 billion in damages. If they get something similar here in terms of a settlement, that could be a large amount of money for Fox as well. Smartmatic put out a statement in the wake of the settlement today saying Dominion's litigation exposed some of the misconduct and damage caused by Fox's disinformation campaign. Smartmatic will expose the rest. Brian, back over to you. Sounds like there's a lot more to come. And by the way, I'm not surprised that the private equity guy was smiling. I would imagine that him and his partners, which own Dominion, are about to become very, very wealthy. That said, let's talk about the settlement. Eamon, two quick questions. Don't want to put you on the spot, but I will sure. anyway. Number one, will we learn anything more about the settlement other than the dollar amount? Anything News Corp or whatever may be required to do? And number two, do we know if News Corp has insurance? Because I wonder how much that $787 million they will actually have to pay themselves. On, on question number one, our understanding is there are no additional terms. I asked Nelson, the lawyer, uh, what else Fox might have to do here. Are we going to see Fox anchors, for example, on air reading apology statements, that kind of thing? He said that's not in the settlement agreement. It's just the money and a couple of smaller items in the settlement agreement. So uh, no fulsome apology on the air is expected necessarily from Fox. I think the statement tonight might be just about all we get. And in terms of insurance, we don't know right now uh, whether Fox has insurance that will cover this settlement. Uh, but if they do, uh, that insurance uh, policy might you know, face some real strain here in the coming months because of all those other cases that are now pending against Fox. This settlement now sort of makes a market, Brian, for what mm -hmm. these cases might be worth going forward. And you wonder what else Dominion is going to get in terms of uh, other settlements out there. And you wonder what else Fox is going to have to pay, Brian. Yeah, the, the headlines came out just moments before the markets closed and News Corp stock barely budged. So it looks like Wall Street believes that there's probably either some insurance or they've got the money they make over a billion a year in net income to cover this Eamon Javers. Thank you very much. All right, let's get now to our all-star panel on this hot topic. Puck founding partner Dylan Byers, New York Times reporter Katie Robinson joining us, and we'll have another guest joining us in just one moment as well. Uh, Dylan, your take on this settlement, $787.5 million is a lot of money, but News Corp is also a very rich company who likely did have insurance. Uh, it's a very rich company, and it has a lot in reserve for, I believe, about $4 billion in cash reserves. You're also talking about a company. It's hard, it's hard to break out the exact Fox News financials from the rest of Fox Corps, but you're looking at annual profits approaching somewhere around $2 billion. So can it sustain this? Absolutely. Is it still a significant chunk off the balance sheet? For sure. Meanwhile, on the staple, on the uh, Dominion side, I should say, uh, you and Eamon were talking about the private equity company that owns a majority stake, Staple Street Capital. When they bought their majority stake in Dominion just five years ago, you're, you're looking at a valuation for Dominion at somewhere around $80 million. Now we're talking about a settlement approaching $800 million, effectively a 10x return on the investment at least. So, uh, look, I, I think there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, your average citizen who would have loved to have seen this gone to trial, yeah. who would have loved to have seen Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity deposed, brought before the court and, and to account for what happened uh, back around November 6th. Yeah. But I, I think Dominion is viewing this as a victory. And I think insofar as Fox does not have to go through that public, public humiliation, 
they are viewing this as a victory of sorts. Well, Katie, I mean, you can understand that perspective because people are going to be cheering the verdict. It is a lot of money. News Corp can weather it. They probably have insurance. If they're not forced to do anything else, there's no apology, there's no change in behavior other than the fine itself, and people start to realize what's come out of this is, you know, obviously a hit to the reputations of some people, but at the same time, some Wall Street guys getting even richer. How do we view this? Yeah, look, I think Dominion definitely is viewing this as a win. I mean, as Dylan said, this is um, this is great for them. They were, I think, a little worried about getting that $1.6 billion damages claim. I mean, you're going before a jury who would be the ones deciding the damages. You're rolling the dice. Um, in terms of Fox not having to do an apology, I think, as Dylan said, a lot of the viewers would see that as a loss for accountability for this kind of thing. But it is now setting a precedent. It's now um, this settlement has happened. It is news. It will set a standard for the other lawsuits going forward. Uh, Fox also did in their statement admit that, well, they did say that certain claims they had said were false. So we do have that now on the record. Yeah, we're also joined now by NPR's David Folkenflick, who is the author of Murdoch's World, doing the quick change with Eamon's camera. David, we appreciate it. Your take on this ruling today. Pleasure. Well, it's a it's an incredibly large sum by any estimation. And this sum accompanied by the, shall we say, Spartan, but real acknowledgement that Fox broadcast false claims. Uh, others would call them, I think, quite rightly lies about Dominion uh, constitute a kind of accountability, just as Dominion's lawyers uh, said a few hours ago in front of this very courtroom. Uh, I would say, you know, it's notable that the amount of money is just a scotch, maybe $12.5 million less than $800 million. Why does that count? That's half of the amount that uh, Dominion had been seeking in damages of $1.6 billion. So, you know, Fox can say to itself, we paid less than half of what they were seeking. And it's certainly money that the Murdochs and that Fox Corp can afford. But nonetheless, it's the dollar figure itself and its public disclosure, which doesn't always happen in such cases, uh, constitute a public acknowledgement that Fox did wrong here and that it was real wrong. And yeah. the real question is how it will comport itself in, in the time to come. And there's another case, Dylan, obviously the Smartmatic case, which theoretically could be even bigger because they're asking for more money, about a billion dollars more. No doubt Smartmatic's attorneys are looking at this thinking, OK, well, they got about 45 percent. We'll ask for 45 percent and they'll settle. But here's the reality. I mean, I'm in the TV news business. We have ratings, Dylan. There's nothing that I have seen that shows that the audience is taking this out on Fox News. No, not well, at you've all. Got to remember. Go, hold on, David, I'll get your take. In fact, respond, respond to Dylan. So Dylan, you go, and then David, you jump on and respond to Please. David, and then Katie, you respond to Dylan responding to David. <laughs> uh, sure, I'll just go very quickly. I, look, I, I think it's important to remember how we got here. We got here because Fox News uh, reported the truth, which was that Biden was going to win Arizona, and very quickly came to the conclusion that their audience wanted something else. Based off of the available evidence, there's nothing really to suggest that the Fox News audience is going to put a great deal of stock in the, uh, the revelations that came forward in this case, nor in the fact that, uh, that Fox was willing to pay $787 million in order to settle the case. And yes, like you mentioned with Smartmatic, there are probably going to be more settlements to come. Does it affect the Fox News audience? I would say probably not. And in fact, the victory here might be by avoiding the court trial, by avoiding 
the depositions that the, that the Murdochs and that the on-air talent was going to have to make, that they may have saved themselves from that public humiliation yep. and yep. in so doing uh, may, uh, you know, may have helped the business. David? You know, I would say that Fox has been sort of almost ritualistically humiliated and embarrassed over recent weeks and months, uh, not in drips and drabs, but ultimately in a flood of uh, disclosures about how Fox behaves when they're outside public view. And this deep cynicism that coursed through particularly the opinion side, but also the executive ranks. And as Dylan suggested, that essentially Fox's viewers punished it for presenting the facts and the truth about their projections about Joe Biden winning the key state of Arizona on election night, but also being the first to do so. And I think that was particularly unwelcome for its viewers. You know, Fox, the real question is how this changes how Fox operates uh, on the air. And you may say less discreet accusations. Uh, from Fox about specific things that prove false and defamatory. But, you know, will Fox adopt a different tone that might either alienate or bore its viewers? You know, they've proven desirous as Fox News's uh, hosts and producers and executives yeah. attested in the uh, private communications that we've seen, um, they've wanted more of, not less of. Well, that, so, that you could, know, I think that Fox is... I was going to say, David, and we, I'm sorry I was just going to say one last you, thing, which ahead. is just... just. Sure, I was just going to say briefly, one of the things that you have to realize it's in a closed ecosystem. One of the things about Fox's viewers is they may encounter news about what happened here at this courthouse, but that they've been trained or told by Fox you can't trust what you hear elsewhere about Fox, or people may be, just be disclined to do so in a vast proportion. So they're unlikely to punish Fox for what happened. And you here. wonder, and we'll talk about this later in the show as well, Katie, but you wonder what this might mean for 93-year-old Rupert Murdoch and, of course, his son Lachlan, who's now pretty much in charge of the company and is said to have a little bit more of perhaps a moderate view on things. Do you think this will change the operating model for at least the Fox side of News Corp? Um, well, you just age Rupert by a year. I think he is actually just 92, but that uh, <laughs> I don't think he was uh, really wanting to go on the stand there. Um, and Lachlan Murdoch, I don't think he would often be described as more moderate than his father. In fact, I think a few people believe he's further to the right than his dad is on political issues. Whether it will change how Fox News is currently run, um, I think Dylan and David are both right that I don't think this is going to really undo much of what they've currently been doing. I think it should be noted, though, that in this case, even though we didn't quite make it to trial, we had a jury selected, we didn't get further than that. Just the sheer volume of um, internal emails and messages from the inner workings of Fox that came out. I mean, private messages from Rupert Murdoch. He doesn't really speak publicly often anymore. Yeah. So we really just got this glimpse inside the workings of this network that, I mean, dozens of reporters haven't quite been able to crack in that way yeah. before. Katie Robertson, Dylan Byers, David Folkenflick, appreciate you all. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to have more coverage of this big settlement and what it means for News Corp and the Murdochs as well coming up a bit later on in the show. Meantime, we are just getting going. And up next, good news, all you subscription scofflaws out there. Netflix may be backing down from its crusade to end password sharing. Plus, could your next beer at a bar be served to you by a 16-year-old? What Iowa may do with teenage labor that, of course as political parties pointing fingers. That's next. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, more breaking news tonight on this Tuesday. The White House has just released the 2022 tax return for President Biden and the First Lady. Joining us now with details, senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Brian, it is tax day and the White House therefore is releasing the tax information for President Biden and Vice President Harris, who both filed jointly with their spouses for 2022. And here are some of the top lines. President Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden earned $579,514 in 2022. Of course, $400,000 for the president's salary. Of course, Dr. Biden is a teacher in Virginia. They also got pension and Social Security benefits as well. Uh, they saw a 23.8 percent federal tax rate, which is slightly lower, and their earnings were also slightly lower from 2021, a year that saw President Biden uh, notch 19 days uh, where he was not in office, and he and the First Lady uh, then were earning money through separate companies before taking office. But perhaps, Brian, more interesting is the difference in the tax returns for Vice President Harris and second gentleman Doug Emhoff. This year, those two uh, filed $457,760 in earnings, a 20.5% federal tax rate. That included Emhoff's salary at Georgetown, as well as the vice president's $74,000 in earnings as a writer. But it was a steep drop from 2021 that included about $582,000 that Emhoff earned as a partner. There's two partnerships in law firms, as well as $319,000 in capital gains income. Of course, 2022 being the first full year that both President Biden and Vice President Harris were in office, but pretty standard filings for that year, as we're seeing right now, Brian. Yep, for the president, certainly is long way from the $11 million the Bidens made in 2017. Kilatowski, thank you very much. Sure. All right. It is time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories that you likely will be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, watch out Samsung. There is a new foldable phone coming to the market. We're now reporting that Google is planning to launch its first foldable smartphone, the Pixel Fold, sometime this June. CBC's Jennifer Elias breaking that story. For a cool $1,700, it will be the highest priced smartphone sold by the company but will still be slightly cheaper than Samsung's Google Z Fold 4 that retails for $1,800. Google is expected to officially announce the phone on May 10th at its developers conference. Anybody remember the Motorola StarTac? Battery lasted like a week and a half and you could throw it and nothing happened. Anyway. All right, next up, Meta planning another round of layoffs. That according to Vox, the company is expected to begin laying off employees tomorrow. The upcoming cuts are reported to be in effect around 4,000 jobs. Last month, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg shared in a Facebook post that April cuts would impact tech departments, while another round of cuts in May will target the business side of Meta. 
However, this should not come as a surprise because Zuckerberg previously shared the company needed to cut 10,000 jobs. Ouch. All right, meantime, Netflix wrapping up its earnings call last hour. It comes as shares of the company recovered some of their earlier losses in after hours trading. Julia Borston has the very latest on what is going on with Netflix. Julia. If you can't hear Julia Borston, don't worry, I cannot hear either. When we get her audio back up, we will come to Julia Borston. I believe we have Ed Lee standing by. Who can jump right in on this? Ed Lee, can you hear me? Is your audio working? Are we doing the tin can and string I, I got thing? you, Brian. You know what? Showing I got up, you, Brian. I can hear you. Audio is 90% of the battle. Video is 10. Edmund, we're glad that you're here. Your take, we'll get back to Julia in a second, your take on Netflix's numbers. Coming out of well, here. Well, it was disappointing, right? Oh, there we go. Julia's back. Ed, finish up your thought, and then we'll go back to Julia. Sure. No, it was disappointing. I thought I thought the results were disappointing. I mean, they also, you know, weaker guidance for the current quarter, too. What we're seeing really is the effects of competition, finally, right, with the you know, uh, HBO Max now is Max and, of course, Apple and Amazon, Hulu, of course. So these guys are just building up their portfolios and eating into Netflix's share. And I think we're finally seeing the results of that, that it, the competition is just stiffer. We're just doing this Jeopardy style, Julia. We're doing we're going to do the answer and then we're going to come to you for the question. <laughs> What happened? I'm here, Brian. I hope you can hear me. Well, so it was a bit of a bouncing back and forth. First, Netflix shares plummeted down more than 10%. Then they bounced into the green. Then they settled around the flat line after a mixed bag of results. So earnings did beat expectations by two cents per share, but revenue fell short of expectations despite better than expected subscriber growth. The company did add 1.75 million subs in the quarter. That's better than the less than 1.4 million that analysts projected. But the guidance, as Ed just mentioned, was lower than expected for the second quarter, both in terms of revenue and in terms of earnings. But on the upside, and this is why the stock recovered, Netflix co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters said that they are on track to meet their 2023 financial objectives and that two key initiatives are doing well. First, engagement with their ad-supported tier, they say, is above their expectations. And they also say that the advertising option is not cannibalizing the ad-free subscription um, that is core to their business. They also say they see opportunity to keep developing advertising features, such as measurement and verification, which will bolster the opportunity for ads down the line. And then second, they are moving forward with their crackdown on password sharing, announcing plans to launch paid sharing worldwide, including in the U.S. in the second quarter, saying that delaying that launch from the first to the second to the third quarter will result in a better outcome. Take a listen. This is an important transition for us, uh, and so we're working hard to make sure that we do it well and as thoughtfully as we can. Uh, this last set of country rollouts have gone well, uh, and, and maybe most importantly, we're directionally consistent with what we uh, saw in Latin America. So just to remind people what that looks like, very much like a price increase, we see an initial cancel reaction, and then we build out of that, both in terms of membership um, and revenue, as borrowers sign up for their own Netflix accounts, And so that revenue benefit will fall in the third quarter from the crackdown on password sharing rather than the second. So that's another reason they have more optimism for the second half of the year. Now, all of these changes come as the company decides to wind down Netflix's old DVD business. After 25 years, they say they'll be shipping their final DVDs 
on September 29th. So it's the end of that era as Netflix's, Netflix focuses on things that it said for so long that it would never do, such as ads or cracking down on password sharing. Brian? And what to do with all those CDs, uh, coasters, disc golf. <laughs> Ed Lee, a, f a final comment to you. Is this just also about the content? I mean, I, honestly, I'm not a huge TV consumer, but I haven't heard people, a lot of people saying, well, you gotta watch that show. Well, or even if they say that, it's sort of people don't necessarily know that it's a Netflix show or, you know, that they just don't they're not owning that branding the way that they used to. Uh, you know, there's HBO, Hulu, Amazon, Apple. They've all got some kind of a show that, you know, attracts viewers for that specific reason. So they're no they're no longer sort of the only ones, you know, who, who have that sort of that advantage. They've, they've really sort of lost that. So that's a big part of the content as part of it. But I also think their spend, I mean, their spend is still really, really high relative to everyone else. Everyone else is going through the Netflix correction. Their margins have going, been going down. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they take a closer look at how they do the spend and maybe even do a bit of a correction themselves. There you go. Ed Lee and Julia Borston, we appreciate it. Julia, thank you. All right, still ahead. You want to make some money in the stock market? I mean, who doesn't? We got a stock that more and more analysts love. The name, oh, we just showed, there it is, in the video. We'll talk about it. Plus, the new Iowa teenage labor bill that is some folks angry and others saying, there's no other way. There's not enough people to work. We need a 15-year-old. We'll tell you about it coming up. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, welcome back. It is time now for a quick last call watch list, getting you set up for tomorrow and some possible money-making opportunities. First up, NVIDIA. It is up after being upgraded to buy by HSBC. They noted that AI opportunities offsets previous worries. NVIDIA, by the way, is up nearly 90% this year. Stock two is one that is near and dear to our collective hearts here at NBC. That is Comcast, our parent company, making some money today. Atlantic Equities upgraded Comcast, believing... We are well positioned for this year, even if we have a recession. We would certainly agree with that. And stock three is one that has been in the news lately for all the wrong reasons. That is Western Alliance Bank. It's one of those regional banks that got bludgeoned in the SVB meltdown. Shares surging after hours of 15%. They said deposits actually rose $2 billion in the first half of April and outflow stabilized late last month. That means customers and investors seem to be regaining some confidence in this Phoenix-based bank. Maybe some good news for banking overall. All right, now to some news that is certain to generate some very uh, hot heat, shall we say, in every direction. A new bill just passed the Iowa State Senate today, which would expand work options for kids and teens as young as 14. The bill would let 16- and 17-year-olds work until 9 p.m. during the school year and as late as 11 p.m. in the summer could also serve alcohol at a restaurant, not a bar, with parental approval. The bill would also allow kids as young as 15 to work on things like, quote, light assembly line work. One caveat, 
Teens must be part of an approved training program with supervision. The bill, not yet law. It may not become one. It must pass the Iowa House and then be signed by the governor. But in a state where the unemployment rate was nearly 3% in March, pretty much full employment, could this bill help potentially fill a gap in the Iowa labor market? Or is it a recipe for disaster that could prey on kids? Joining us now to talk about it, Democratic State Senator Liz Bennett, who voted against the bill. Republican State Senator Adrian Dickey, who voted for the bill. Uh, State Senator Bennett, I'll start with you. Uh, I mean, this bill is getting a lot of attention. Obviously, people are thinking 15-year-olds could go to work in a slaughterhouse. Is that true? There are some very serious concerns with this bill. Uh, We certainly do have a, a labor crisis in the state of Iowa. Um, but I'll tell you what, with 350,000 more kids than childcare availability slots, if you want to address the workforce shortage in Iowa, we need child care, not child labor. Um, we're concerned about this bill because we're going to see 16 and 17 year olds serving alcohol uh, frequently to older, uh, older people, older men who themselves may be slightly intoxicated. Um, hazardous occupations like roofing, excavation, demolition, working in freezers. And many of these provisions violate federal fair labor and child labor laws. Um, And there are reasons for those laws. You know, I think we all we all support the idea of having kids get out there and get some experience, have some opportunities. I don't think there's anybody in the Iowa legislature who didn't work, um, you know, as as a teenager to earn some of that extra money. But We need to make sure that these are safe opportunities and we need to stand up against what is turning into a radical redefinition of childhood in America. This is a bad bill. Well, State Senator Dickey, tell us what uh, what maybe is is being is misleading about the bill, what people are missing. Thanks, Brian. I mean, after nine hours debate last night, I would have thought that uh, all these uh, inaccurate uh, comments would have been taken care of, but we start right out with them all over again. Current law says in Iowa that 12-year-olds can perform migrant labor and 10-year-olds can perform street work. Uh, this bill is amended, close that, uh, stops that, that cannot take place any longer, and closes a loophole where 14 to 17-year-olds could have been granted a workforce apprenticeship to work in coal mines, meatpacking plants, logging operations, handling explosives or radioactive materials. This bill eliminates those dangerous environments that are allowed in our existing child labor laws, but we continue to hear the same talking points that are just factually, uh, they're just incorrect. They're simply incorrect. Senator Bennett, uh, you know, she made a comment about the, the issue on, on child care needs and, and once again said something that was completely incorrect. She said Iowa has 350,000 uh, slots for child care, needs for child care. There's 3.2 million people in the state of Iowa. There's there's 400,000 uh, uh, children under the age of uh, nine in Iowa. Common sense doesn't show that we have the need for 350,000 childcare uh, positions. But even if so, that's not what this bill was about. Happy to talk to Senator Bennett on that bill. We've we funded 90 or excuse me, 81 million dollars in the last two years for childcare needs in the state of Iowa. This bill didn't have anything to do with childcare. Senator Bennett, your this response. Bill didn't have anything- Let's let Senator Bennett, and then I'll come back to you, Senator Dickey. Well, I completely disagree. Um, This bill is about addressing the workforce crisis in Iowa. Um, It was discussed on the floor of the House. Um, And I'm actually glad to hear Senator Dickey being willing to talk about the bill since he was unwilling to answer questions about this 
on the floor last night. And that is why we were there so late. Um, you know, but we do know our businesses have spoken out. We know that we have a childcare crisis in Iowa and we have adults who are wanting to go back into the workforce. And instead a bill like this is cracking open the labor market for dangerous jobs and for lower paid, less experienced workers. There's a better way forward. And that is getting adults who want to work back into the workforce. Brian, th this bill had nothing to do with, with the workforce issues that are in Iowa. The fact is, every single state's got workforce <clears throat> issues. I brought this bill forward because the last several years, I've heard from so many youth have commented that they want to work more hours than what's uh, the restrictions that are in place are too restrictive. For example, they currently work past 7 p.m. However, we don't even blink an eye when we allow their classmates to, to be at a basketball game until midnight or away from a musical performance during a school night. That's never been an issue for us, but when it comes to work, if, for a few kids who want to work, our laws currently say they can't work past 7 p.m. This, this bill allows for the modernization of our youth labor laws to resemble the laws of surrounding states. In doing so, it provides greater opportunities for our worth, excuse me, for our youth who want to, not being forced to, certainly not being sold into, but greater opportunities for, for our youth who desire and aspire, aspire to take on the learning well, responsibility just, of having a job. Uh, Senator Dickey, I do wonder, I was just, last year I was actually in your great state. I was in Davenport, drove from Illinois up, went across, went through Rock Island, across the river. We did the show from Davenport. Great people, by the way. I do wonder, and you see help wanted signs everywhere. Where are all the workers? Why are we even talking about fifth? Listen, I worked at Wendy's at 14 years old. Okay, it was terrible, but that, that's what I had to do. And I realized that's not what I wanted to keep doing. But where are all the 25-year-old the men? Where'd they go? What are they doing? Different issue. This bill was not about that. This bill's no, not know, about that. No, I know it's not. I'm just asking you, but, and I'd like to hear Senator Benner's response. Everywhere I go, people can't find workers, a, and the labor bill. force participation rate is down. Where are the people? Where did they go? How are they making a living? Good question. That's that's fair in every single state. I think every single state is is having the same dilemma. But this bill wasn't about that. This bill is about giving children to teenagers the same opportunities to have a job during the school year as their classmates do uh, playing a basketball game or being in a musical. You know, it, it, it's, it's common sense. It, it, we're not making kids work. There is nothing here in forcing them to work. And I was a work to force a right to work state. If they don't want to work, they can quit. It's not an issue. You know, in many of these occupations, the parents have to get permission for yeah. them to work. So uh, Senator Bennett this, did my this not I'm sorry an issue to address our workforce issue. I apologize for interrupting Senator Dickey. Senator Bennett, did my point though make make some sense? If you can't get 25 and 30 year olds to work, then you either shut off parts of the economy or this is what we get to. Maybe we should be looking at the other side of the problem. I've traveled all over the country. No, people are missing. Millions of people have just stopped working. Well, I don't I don't want to comment on that, but I can tell you for the state of Iowa, um, it's when it's been well documented for a long time um, that we are one of the top states that people tend to leave. We have a population outflow um, that causes an economic problem for us, not only um, you know, with filling positions, um, but also with attracting companies and higher paid jobs um, to the state. I think I'm uniquely poised to talk about that as a young professional and somebody who did stay in the state um, after college. And my take on that um, is a few different things. Number one, if you look at wages, even when adjusted for cost of living, 
Iowa has lower wages and salaries than even surrounding Midwestern states. That's something that needs to be addressed. Um, number two, we can see that people are out of the workforce um, because of childcare responsibilities uh -huh. and in greater measure uh, for my generation, um, caring for caring for our elders often. Um, yep. You know, so addressing this will be central to getting our economy going. And then when we're talking about people leaving the states, um, I can tell you that over the past 10 years, the climate Senator. in Iowa has changed and we've seen more and more people leave because of the Republicans' regressive, divisive, culture war legislation that brands Senator. people to Iowa is not the place to be. Senator Bennett, Senator Dickey, uh, good discussion there for the Iowa State Senate. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. We'll watch that bill very closely. All right, still ahead. Another bad day for Southwest Airlines. A computer glitch grounded thousands of flights, leaving passengers trapped on tarmacs and in terminals. What exactly is going on at America's biggest airline? What is next? Welcome back. More than 2,000 Southwest flights across America were delayed due to technical difficulties. Today, that is more than half of all their flights. But this is only the most recent issue for Southwest. Comes just four months after the airline suffered a meltdown over Christmas travel rush, which may have ruined the holidays for thousands of people who could not get to where they needed or wanted to go. This calls into question, what is going on at their Dallas headquarters? Get reaction and bring in the second vice president of the Southwest Airlines Pilots Union, Tom Nicoy. Uh, Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, what exactly is, these aren't FAA problems, these are Southwest issues. What's going on? Hi, Brian, thanks for having me on. Um, this was a uh, dispatch software that um, uh, we used to uh, generate required paperwork for every, um, every flight that uh, went down today at about, uh, I think it was about 7.15 local time here in Dallas uh, that lasted about a couple of hours. It's interesting that this is a uh, program that uh, from our internal discussions with flight ops leadership uh, is our uh, understanding that uh, goes down um, intermittently quite often, maybe on a weekly basis. Uh, this one would just happen to be longer and it's, uh, it's the same issue that we had. It's, it wasn't related to the meltdown but uh, it's just that chronic underinvestment in the uh, IT infrastructure. Which I find, I find, Tom, bizarre because your CEO, Bob Jordan, to be fair, I've never met the man. I knew the former CEO, Gary Kelly, fairly well. He came up as a technology guy. He started as a programmer. You'd kind of think technology was his baby. Yeah, I don't know how much technology background Bob has. And, and uh, I meet with Bob. We meet with Bob uh, often. Uh, uh, if you look at our even board of directors here, Southwest Airlines board of directors, there's really no technology background there. Uh, we still don't have a, a chief technology officer with the company. And it's just like if I neglected my house for 20 years and decided that, uh, you know, I needed to get back and, and kind of build it back up and make sure it's livable, it's it's not going to be overnight. So I understand that they're doing some proactive things to, uh, to fix the uh, infrastructure issue, but it is the lack of the infrastructure spending for the last 20 years since Gary Kelly was uh, CEO. Um, they diverted yeah. a lot of that money, as you know, to uh, shareholders and dividends and uh, stock buybacks, and, and we're paying the price for it. And uh, so the uh, the summer schedule is going to be pretty interesting to see uh, whether or not they can fly those uh, 40, 200 flights a day. Mm. Uh, we have unprecedented pilot attrition problems right now. Uh, we're in the middle of the uh, biggest pilot shortage in, uh, in the history of uh, the airline industry. And uh, uh, to date, we've lost 83 of our uh, pilots to uh, our competitors. 
You know, Tom, I appreciate you coming on and I urge our entire audience, do not take it out on the gate agents, the crew, the pilots, nobody. Make sure it has nothing to do with you guys and we appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's exactly right. Thank you All so right, much. Coming up, we've got more on the last minute settlement in the Fox Dominion lawsuit. Stick around. All right, welcome back. More on that breaking news late today. Fox News parent News Corp settling its defamation lawsuit with voting Dominion Voting Systems. News Corp will pay $787.5 million to Dominion and its private equity owners. But this is not the end. The company faces another big lawsuit, bigger actually, from Smartmatic Voting, which is asking for about $2.5 billion. Let's talk more about this and what do I mean for News Corp and the Murdochs with Senior Associate Dean at the Yale University School of Management, Jeff Sonnenfeld, and Semaphore co-founder, Ben Smith. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much for joining us. The News Corp board is an interesting one. It's small. It's eight people. Two of them are last name of Murdoch. One works for the journal. So you got five others. Do you see big changes coming at the board level for a News Corp because of this? Ryan, honest goodness, you are the only one in the media asking this question right now. I don't mean to pander to you because this is the business network, and I'm glad you're asking this business question because this board has huge liability ahead of them. Nobody's talked about this. There are massive shareholder derivative lawsuits. Already one has been filed in Delaware court, and there are others. that This board, Murdoch, controls 40%. 60% of the shareholders out there uh, can sue, and some of them are already mad. You have terrible testimony from, of course, Rupert Murdoch as, as board chair and executive chair, Lachlan Murdoch, as you mentioned, Paul Ryan, a very sophisticated board, a guy named uh, Bill Burke, who was the chairman of Quinn Emanuel, a major law firm, really sophisticated people, J Case Chair, uh, Carrie Chase. These are people that can't escape uh, knowing that they failed a duty of managerial oversight. Their insurance company may not bother back them. They may have to self-insure the way Elon Musk self-insures Tesla. Uh, they've got they've got big problems here. They failed in a duty of care and a duty of loyalty. Yeah, do you agree with that, Ben? I mean, this is a publicly traded company. I know a lot of the rest of the media wants to go after the personalities. I get that. It's kind of the quote sexy stuff. What happens to this board? I mean, you know, I, so far what we've seen is that they they are absolutely defending the Murdochs, the company. I don't. I mean, it doesn't seem to me. There's, there's showing any sign that they're planning to make some big theatrical change to show how much remorse they have. Yeah. So, so Jeff, I mean, what's the next step for, for News Corp? I guess to settle the, the Smartmatic lawsuit, I assume, settle it. That'll, that's going to be an enormous settlement. We've already seen what the market price is for this kind of business. And Eamon Jivers covered that very early uh, in, in your show, saying this is the new market price. And so these continuing lawsuits are going to be tough. The derivative lawsuits really ring the bell. They could dwarf any of these kind of settlements. And not to disagree with Ben, who I think is one of the smartest uh, media critics out there, is uh, they've already changed programming. I'd ask, you know, Ben, can you tell us the last time you've seen Donald Trump appear on air? Also, we don't see the personal venom he, coming. He, he was on four days ago talking to Tucker Carlson. They have changed programming, but what they have not done is is change, you know, management. And I think the part of the big problem here is the CEO's last name is Murdoch. And the buck cannot stop with a family member in these family-owned companies. But, you know, Ben. And so the buck is bouncing all over the place. Yeah, and, and last word, Ben. To be fair, I mean, it, it, looking at numbers, the audience doesn't hasn't taken it out on on Fox at all. Yeah, that's right. They, they, I mean, it's a it's a sort of separate separate universe over here where we are talking about this. Yeah, it certainly is. Ben Smith, Jeff Sonnefeld, uh, appreciate you both joining us on on such short notice. Thank you, guys. Be well. 
All right, coming up, the SEC chair getting hammered on Capitol Hill today. We've got some of the explosive testimony next. All right, welcome back. It was a rather fiery testimony on Capitol Hill today. SEC Chair Gary Gensler taking questions from the House Financial Services Committee on tough regulations on crypto trading. One of the most contested moments coming when Committee Chair Patrick McHenry pressed Gensler on whether or not he viewed Ethereum as a commodity or a security. Do you think it serves the market for an object to be, to be viewed by the commodities regulator as a commodity and the securities regulator to be viewed as a security. I think no should be a very simple answer for you here. I think that uncertainty is bad, is it not? And I think that Congress has said that there's one agency, the Securities and Exchange Commission, under this committee. And you won't answer my question, and you're the head of that agency. So give me a break. Come on. I'm answering it in the generic because you would not want me to speak about any one set of facts and circumstance. Okay, so, but you've already spoken. Have you said anything about Bitcoin? My predecessors and the agency itself has spoken to them. Okay, but you're not willing to do the same about Ether. All right, folks, what do you think? All right, joining us now is Chamber of Digital Commerce founder and CEO Perianne Boring. Perianne, welcome to Last Call. Who do you think should ultimately regulate crypto? Well, digital assets are a spectrum of assets. There are digital asset commodities. There's digital asset securities. There's digital asset currencies. There's payment systems. There's NFTs. There's digital um, uh, collectibles. There are many different types of digital assets that there are many different regulatory agencies that have jurisdiction over this space. Uh, that clip you just played with uh, Chairman Patrick McHenry grilling the SEC Chairman Gary Gensler really gets to the fundamental issue the industry has, which is the need for regulatory clarity. And that exchange mm-hmm. was very emblematic of what the industry is dealing with. How I did a. Uh, Perry Ann, I did a I did a panel down at Virginia Tech about four and a half years ago, and with with Hester Purse, who is actually a member one of the SEC commissioners. This was four and a half years ago. We talked about the urgency of getting this done. It feels like the SEC is moving at about the speed of a hundred year old tortoise with a broken ankle. Yeah, uh, Commissioner Purse spoke at an event that we hosted about a year ago, and she said, unfortunately, the SEC has made very, very little progress. There has been no regulatory guidance issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission for the digital asset ecosystem, despite the fact that industry has been calling for it for over six years. Uh, Coming back to that question of Ethereum, which really kicked off the entire hearing, how can it be that the Securities and Exchange Commission is taking the position that digital tokens, including Ethereum, potentially are securities. But then you have the CFTC also saying these exact same assets are commodities. How yeah. is there clarity in, in, you know, when you have the, when the agencies themselves don't agree? And even the, the SEC, the commissioners of the SEC, Hester Peirce being one of them, don't agree. There is not regulatory clarity in this space, despite what yeah. the chairman testified on this morning. Well, Perry Ann, you know that it may not be about clarity so much as it's about control who ultimately is the regulator. Perry Ann Boring, U.S. Digital Chamber. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right, let's wrap it up, folks. And do you know what happened 24 years ago tonight? The great one. 
hung up his skates. Wayne Gretzky played his final game in the NHL. Let's go back in time to April 18, 1999. Gretzky waved goodbye to a packed house at Madison Square Garden. He assisted in the Rangers' 2-1 overtime loss to the Penguins. Gretzky, of course, the face of hockey for 20 years. He lifted the Stanley Cup four times. He finished his NHL career with 894 goals and 1,963 assists, both obviously all-time records. Gretzky also holds another record off the ice, the most expensive hockey card. Two years ago, his rookie card sold for a whopping $3.75 million. Talk about a L.A. Kings ransom. Not bad from a kid from outside Toronto, Ontario, Canada. But 24 years? It's hard to believe it's been that long. Eh? I'm going to go home and watch Strange Brew. Well, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That is your last call for tonight. We will see you tomorrow. The Tank of Sharks is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.